0: Welcome to Christian Casemakers, where we equip ordinary Christians to be confident casemakers. My name is Joel Lethbridge, and I am your host. <laughs> Welcome, I'm glad you were able to join me for this episode. I look forward to our time together today. As we think about the, the case for Christian casemaking, I would like to hone in on five specific areas of focus that I want to talk about. The first one is identity. The second one is objective. The third is calling. The fourth is examples. And finally, the fifth is duty. So five areas that I would like to focus on. So, uh, let me talk about these. Let's, let's, uh, let's review these together. So, first of all, I want to talk about our identity. Specifically, what is a Christian casemaker? A Christian casemaker is first and foremost a disciple of Jesus Christ. A disciple is someone who has abandoned their rebellion against God, found amnesty and mercy through Jesus Christ, and who is committed to becoming more Christ-like. Now that's not to say that they don't battle the flesh and there won't be you know, challenges that they face and hurdles they have to overcome and sins they have to wrestle with. But their intent is to be more Christ-like. So that's what I mean by a disciple. So when I think about our identity, we are talking about disciples, who a disciple who is prepared. And what do I mean by that, by prepared? I mean really two basic things. The first is the idea of being uh, equipped with knowledge. So we have information that we can use. We have the truth to be used. But it goes beyond knowledge. And it, in, in fact, it turns into skill, meaning the application of that knowledge. So when I think of the disciple who is prepared, I think of a follower of Jesus Christ who, is, who has both knowledge as well as skill in applying that knowledge. So what what knowledge and skill are we focused in on? Well, we're talking about our identity. So let's continue on our identity as Christian case makers. We are a disciple who is prepared to use evidence. So our focus is on sharing evidence and not personal opinion. And then finally, when I think about our identity, we are disciples who are prepared to use evidence to make the case for essential Christianity. So what do I mean by essential? I mean those things on which, if they are not true, Christianity does not stand. Inside Christianity, we may have internal debates about what the Bible says on a specific issue. But when I'm thinking about essential Christianity, I'm thinking about those things without which Christianity cannot be true. So if that is our identity, then what is our objective? Well, our objective is simply to lay out the evidence for the gospel in a clear, gracious, and persuasive way so that a receptive person can make a meaningful decision or a meaningful commitment. So our goal is, is not to manipulate, our goal is not to exaggerate, our goal is not to make it fuzzy and unclear. We're simply here to lay out evidence for the gospel in a clear, gracious, and persuasive way. We are very purposeful about engaging in that conversation with those who are receptive to hearing it. We're looking for people who are open and unbiased and willing to weigh evidence. So that is our objective as a Christian casemaker. The third area of focus was calling. So what is our calling as Christian casemakers? Well, here's the reality. God calls us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Reason is the ability to properly use the mind to draw accurate conclusions about him and in, in the world that he has made. So our calling is to love him with our mind and to use reason, the main tool of the mind, to draw accurate conclusions. You may not be aware, you may not even... Um, even have thought this in the past, this may be something not only that is new, but something that that kind of stands in the face of what you've always thought or always heard of, and that is that there are a lot of examples of Christians who have used the mind, who have used reasoning. The first of which was Jesus Christ himself, the man whom we all follow. Let me just share a couple of passages with you where Jesus is speaking about this himself. In John chapter 5 and verse 36, Jesus says, But I have a greater testimony than John's, speaking of John the Baptist, because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. And then he says this, These very works I am doing testify about me that the Father has sent me. Does it make sense what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is saying essentially that the works that I do, that which you see, the evidence that I show you bears witness to the truth of my claim about who I am. A little bit later on in John chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus is speaking to the Jews. The Jews surrounded him and asked, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly and Jesus responds and says I did tell you and you don't believe Jesus answered them the works that I do in my father's name testify about me once again notice that Jesus is appealing to the works that he did as a witness to who he was there's more John a little bit later on John same same chapter of John John chapter 10 verse 37 through 38 Jesus says, hey, if I'm not doing my Father's works, don't believe me. Wow, pause and think about that for a moment. Jesus is saying, if I am not doing what I say I'm doing, then don't believe me. Wow, that's kind of interesting, right? What other religion says, hey, if you find out that what I'm saying is not true, don't believe it? But Jesus says that. He continues on. But if I am doing them and you don't believe me, believe the works. Think about that for a second. Jesus is saying, hey, even if I am doing the works and you don't believe me, then believe the works that I do. Meaning, if I'm doing miracles and you you still don't believe me, then believe the miracles that I'm doing as testimony of who I am. He finishes up by saying, this way you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Once again, Jesus is appealing out to the evidence for who he says he is. Of course, he's speaking directly about the works that he's doing in the Father's name, the miracles. Over in Luke, Luke chapter 7, verse 20 through 22, Luke records it this way. Luke says, When the men reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Let's pause here for a moment. We are talking about the disciples of John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist, this is the one who leapt in his mother's womb when Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus, walked in the room. Um, this is the person who had actually baptized Jesus. This was the cousin of Jesus. He's in prison. John sends his men to ask Jesus, Hey, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Notice the response that Luke records. Luke says, At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many blind people. Notice it does not say that Jesus said, What on earth? John knows who I am. Um, He didn't say, Get your act together, John. You know better than that. He didn't reprimand John. He didn't call his disciples out. It simply says that after they asked the question, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many blind people. He replied to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news. Jesus does not go into a big dialogue about um, who he is. He simply goes about bearing witness, showing evidence that he is who he claims to be. And then when he does respond to the disciples of John the Baptist, he simply says, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. Jesus is appealing to eyewitness testimony there. He's saying, you saw it for yourself. Now, go and tell John what you saw and what you heard. Now, Jesus wasn't the only example, though. Another example are the disciples. Speaking of John the Baptist, John chapter 1, verse 6-7, through 7, John the Apostle records this about John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him so god was not expecting everyone just to believe jesus christ he actually sent john beforehand to bear witness and testify about the light so that everyone might believe through him luke says in luke chapter 24 verse 46 through 48 he also said to them this is what is written the messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Luke is not asking them just to to blindly believe. Luke is appealing to them and saying, you've seen this yourselves firsthand. You're witnesses of these things. So when we think about the disciples, we have John the Baptist, we have Luke. But we also have the apostles just in general. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, it says this, But you, speaking to the apostles, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Notice what Jesus is telling the apostles. He is saying, You are to go be a witness to what you have seen and heard. Not you're to go ask people to believe blindly. You are to be a witness of what you have seen and what you have heard. So the apostles are all good examples. When we think about the disciples, let me just roll through several of them quickly. Acts chapter 2, verse 32, here's Peter. Peter says, God has raised this Jesus, and we are all witnesses of this. So this is Peter, after the Holy Spirit has come on the apostles, and uh, there's been a a great experience there. The people in the streets thought they were drunk. Peter replies and and offers his first sermon, where he says, "No, No, 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 we're not drunk. We haven't been drinking all night. And he explains what's going on, and he says... God raised this Jesus, and we are all witnesses of this, meaning we are eyewitnesses. We saw this with our own eyes. We're not asking you to believe something we have not seen. Later on in Acts chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter says, You killed the source of life whom God raised from the dead. And he ends that with, We are witnesses of this. So notice that Peter is constantly appealing to the idea that the apostles are witnesses to that which they are claiming. They're not claiming blindly that Jesus died and rose again. They are claiming they saw this man crucified, and then they saw this man risen from the dead. In Acts chapter 4, verse 20, Peter and John speaking say it this way, For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have blindly believed. No, that's not what they said. They said, for we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. In Acts chapter 10, in verse 40, Peter speaking says, God raised up this man, meaning Jesus, on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us whom God appointed as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Meaning, Peter is recognizing that God appointed us as witnesses, and we are people who, it's not just that we think we saw him, we actually ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Um, In Acts chapter 17, verses 2 and 3, Paul is speaking, and it says, "...as usual, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days reasoned with them from the Scriptures..." explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. Again, here is Paul as a disciple, as an apostle, who is reasoning with people from Scripture, showing and proving that the Messiah had to die and rise from the dead. 17, chapter 17, verses 30-31, through 31, Paul says, "...therefore, Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because He has set a day when He is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man He has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. Paul here is saying God didn't just tell us to believe it, God gave us proof. He gave us evidence, and the evidence was that he had raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So, not only do we have Jesus Christ as our example, not only do we have some of the apostles as our examples, but we also have the disciples as our examples. But it doesn't end there. The biblical authors, so the apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. In John chapter 21, verse 24 through 25, John writes this, This is a disciple, speaking of himself, who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. Meaning John is saying, I bear witness that what I have written down reflects what I saw, what I heard. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, John writes it this way, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our own hands concerning the word of life, that's a name for Jesus Christ, that life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us, what we have seen and heard we also declare to you so that you may also have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son Jesus Christ so there is John who wrote several books of the new testament testifying to his eyewitness testimony his, his the foundation for what he is claiming rest upon what he has seen as an eyewitness. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, as well as the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Luke says it this way, "...many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the Word handed them down to us." So Luke wasn't an actual eyewitness, but what he has done is to compile a narrative about the events just like the original eyewitnesses told him. So Luke is appealing or relying on the authority of eyewitness testimony. Well, the Apostle Peter, who wrote First and Second Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, he says this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Notice what Peter is saying here. Peter is saying he's relying on his authority as a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Sufferings meaning the death, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus Christ. A little bit later on in the second book they wrote, 2 Peter chapter 1, and verse 16, Peter says it this way, For we didn't follow cleverly contrived myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter is appealing to or relying on his authority as an eyewitness to the events that he is sharing in the two books that he wrote. Uh, The Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 of the books of the New Testament, right? Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Titus, Philemon, and 1st and 2nd Timothy. In 1st Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8, he's talking about the experience that uh, the people that the resurrected Jesus has encountered, and he ends up saying this, Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. Paul Was an eyewitness to the risen Jesus Christ. I'm in Acts chapter 22, verses 14 and 15. Luke records Paul saying this. And he said, meaning, and Paul said, The God of our ancestors has appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the words from his mouth, since you will be a witness for him to all people. Of what you have seen and heard so Luke is recording Paul sharing his testimony about his conversion and he's identifying that he was actually appointed to see the righteous one he had seen the risen Christ and actually heard the words from Jesus's mouth why did that happen the reason why he had seen the risen Christ and heard the words from his mouth was because he was going to be a witness for him to all people of what he had seen and heard. So here we have Paul identifying that he had seen and heard the risen Savior and was called to bear witness of what he had seen and what he had heard. So we have a lot of examples, starting with Jesus himself, the apostles, and then the disciples, and then the New Testament authors. But there were early Christians who are also examples for us as Christian casemakers. Apollos, a Jew from Alexandria, is spoken about in Acts chapter 18, verses 27 and 28. There are others, Quadratus of Athens, Aristides of Athens, Ariston of Pella, Justin Martyr, Apollonius Claudius, Tertullian... Uh, marcus felix these are all people who lived within 100 to 150 years of jesus christ who were great christian casemakers they made the case for essential christianity but not only did we have early christians but we also have contemporary christians as examples uh, some of the more common, familiar ones, C.S. Lewis, who wrote Mere Christianity, Lee Strobel, who wrote The Case for Christ, Frank Turk, who currently does the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist seminar, is Greg Kukul from Stand to Reason, J. Warner Wallace from Cold Case Christianity, William Lane Craig from Reasonable Faith, uh, Norman Geisler from Christian Apologetics, and then finally, let me say you. You have the ability to be a Christian case maker just like all these other contemporary Christians. But it goes beyond having the opportunity to be a Christian casemaker. Our duty as a Christian casemaker is to have evidential faith. Now, what do I mean by that? Simply put, we have a duty to know what we believe and to be prepared to provide convincing proofs for why it's true. You see, we're not called to have an unreasonable faith, meaning faith that is contrary to the evidence. We're not called to have blind faith, which is faith with little or no evidence. We're called to have an evidential faith, and that is a faith that is based on the best inference from the available evidence. One way of thinking about faith is this. Faith is trusting that the best inference from the evidence is, in fact, true, even though we cannot prove it with 100% certainty. There's still, even with all the evidence, we weren't there, we didn't see it, but we have witnesses who were there, who did see it, and they have borne testimony that it is in fact true. Now, that's no different than me believing that George Washington existed. I was not there. The only thing I have is history books and presuppose pictures of the man. But at some point, even though the evidence is overwhelming, I have to conclude that even though I was not there, even though I am not an eyewitness to George Washington, in fact, he did live. He did exist as a real person. And what is said about him is true. So my encouragement to you is to think Understand the case for Christian casemaking. Understand our identity. Understand our objective. Understand our calling. Understand the rich history, the the overwhelming number of examples that we have before us who were Christian casemakers. And then understand our duty to have an evidential faith. Finally, some of you may Have some objections or have heard some objections? And I want to address just a couple of those here since we hear them quite often. The first objection we are often going to hear is, well, hey, if we're relying on evidence, then why call it faith? And I would go back to that definition of faith that I gave you. The idea that faith is trusting that the best inference from the evidence is in fact true, but we can't prove it with 100% certainty. And so the fact that um, we have evidence does not preclude it from being faith. No matter how much evidence we have, there's always the possibility that it's not true. Now, it may not be reasonable to believe that it's not true, but there's we can't prove it with 100% certainty. So it takes faith to believe it, even in spite of the evidence that we have. And so that's one objection that we might hear. Another objection that you might hear is, hey, look, God prefers that we believe without evidence. I mean, that's what he told the, you know, uh, the doubting Apostle Thomas, right? Usually there's a reference to John chapter 20, verses uh, 24 through 31 in there, somewhere in there. And it says, but Thomas, the one called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were telling him, hey, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, "'If I don't see the mark of the nails in his hands, and I don't put my finger into the mark of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will never believe.'" So a week later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, "'Peace be with you.' Then he said to Thomas, "'Put your finger here and look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side.'" Don't be faithless, but believe. Thomas responded to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Some people try to interpret that as though Jesus is saying, Hey, it's better if you don't have any evidence and you just believe. I just don't think that's what Jesus is saying. And the reason why I believe that is because of the very next verse. Verse 30, it says... Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these that are written are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Notice, if Jesus had been reprimanding Thomas, then why did he go out and perform many other signs in the presence of the same disciples? I mean, shouldn't they just believe without seeing any more signs? So, I don't really think that Jesus is telling Thomas there, hey, you know, you're a better believer if you believe in blind faith, meaning you have no evidence. Clearly, that's not what we've seen Jesus do when we were talking about the example that he left for us earlier. He was constantly appealing to the signs that he was doing. So, I really don't think that's a good argument to make on that scripture. All right, then the last objection that I want to highlight is An objection that we hear that sounds something like this. Look, you can't argue or persuade anyone into the kingdom. I mean, only the Spirit of God can change a rebel's heart. Well, here's the reality about that statement. When When they make that statement, usually they'll appeal out to, a lot of times they'll go out to John chapter 6. They usually will refer to, say, like verse 44 out of John chapter 6. And it says something like this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so, like look, look, you can't argue or persuade anyone into the kingdom. Only the Spirit of God can change a rebel's heart. Now, here's the reality. That's true as far as it goes. The problem is it doesn't go far enough. So what do we mean by that? Well, it's true that no one comes to Christ without the Spirit of God at work calling them. However, with the Spirit of God calling people, a lot of different techniques work. Some people come because the love that has been shown them, the love of Jesus Christ demonstrated through followers of Jesus Christ. Other people come to Christ because they've had some big life event happen that caused them to start paying attention to something they had read, something they had seen, something they heard on the radio. But others will come because of the evidence that it's true. None of them would come if the Spirit of God hadn't been working. So to say that you can't argue or persuade anyone into the kingdom is just not true. Um, The reality of it is that many have been persuaded into the kingdom. Uh, Some of the more contemporary examples that I give you are people who have been persuaded. And by persuaded, we mean they were presented with the evidence, they weighed the evidence, and they saw that the best explanation for the evidence was that the claims of Christianity were, in fact, true. All right, so hopefully that helps you deal with that objection that, you know, the claim is true, but it just doesn't go far enough. Absolutely, the Spirit of God has to work, but with the Spirit of God working, a lot of different things work in bringing people to Christ that wraps up this episode my friends thank you for listening I hope to have you join me next time until then be clear be gracious and be persuasive